kids at all? We had about 30 at the 8.30 service, maybe that's where they are. Oh, good, come on up. We need your help, guys. Come on up, all you guys. Even if you're older than the second grade cutoff for children's church. No, right to here. Actually, right here. Come this way. Come on, right on up here. Yeah, you're so used to being herded off to children's church now. You'll get to go there in a minute. But come on up here and grab a seat. That'll be great. Yeah, grab a seat right down here in the step. Oh, look, we got tons of kids. Great. Come on up. Come on up and find a seat. The future of the youth group's looking re- really good between this group and the group that was at the 8:30 service. I'll probably be with the Lord by then, but All right, come on up. Fantastic. You guys do me a favor, kind of squish towards the middle. Yeah. Squish towards the middle. All right. Hey, when I was about your age, my dad was the greatest dad in the world. He could throw a baseball faster than anybody else. He could throw a football farther than anybody on the planet. And if he needed to, he could beat up any other dad. It's true. Raise your hand if you think your dad is the greatest dad in the world. Hands up. All right. Hey, now I've got a question for you guys. Why is your dad the greatest dad in the world? Um, because he takes care of me and he loves me. Amen. Takes care of you and loves you. Because he plays with me. Because he plays with me and he loves me. Uh, I just felt like saying it. <laughs> now that I think about it, <laughs> now that I've given this some consideration, you know, he's not even in the top ten. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I know your dad. Your dad's awesome. Anyone else think your dad's the greatest in the world? That my dad is very nice and he... He's very fun to play. Well, because he can do good push-ups and he does pull-ups. All right, push-ups and pull-ups, both fantastic. Anyone else? Um, he's funny. Funny. Um, he plays with me and he lets me help him plant blueberries. Helps you plant blueberries. Lets you help him. He lets me help him. Wow, that would climb right up to the top of my list. He loves me and he takes me places. Anyone else? He takes me to church. He takes you to church. I like that. He plays card games with me. Um, he plays baseball with me. Baseball. He takes me fishing. Anyone else? Last chance. Um, Give another one. Um, and he. Well, he helps me get better at sports, which I'm not very good at. Oh, I bet you didn't think. Cool. And he's really funny, and he can, and he can do push-ups. He's funny, and he can do push-ups. All right, down the end. He lets me um, use the great wheel on the grass. He lets you use your great wheel on the grass. Oh, the lawnmower. He lets you use the lawnmower. Wow, that's a, that's a great dad and a very trusting dad. All right. You know, I bet we could stay here for the next hour and you guys could tell me how great your dads are. Because your dads are great. And that's, I am glad. If you think your dad's the greatest in the world, that is a good thing. I want to talk to you real briefly for just a minute 
about a story that Jesus told where he kind of redefined, kind of changed what it means to be great. And it sounds kind of strange, but let me read you what he had to say. Jesus' followers, the twelve disciples, they were fighting with each other, arguing as to who was going to be the greatest. And Jesus knew what they were thinking. So this is what he did. He took a little kid like you, and he brought him over, and he put him, a little kid, right in their midst, right with all of them. And this is what he said. Whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. For he who is least among you all, he is the greatest. Isn't that kind of crazy, upside down? Whoever's the least amongst you all is the greatest. That's what Jesus said about greatness. Hey, we'll pray. How about that for now? We'll pray. And those of you that want to go to children's church, those of you between kindergarten and second grade, you can go to children's church. And if you don't want to go to children's church, you can go back and sit with your parents. Let me pray first, all right? Every eye closed, every head bowed. Every eye closed, every head bowed. All right, let's pray. God, we thank you that Jesus loved the little children and that he didn't look down on the little children. And I thank you that Jesus was really humble and that he defined greatness as humility and treating the lowly people right. Lord, help us to do the same. Help us to be humble like Jesus. And we pray in Jesus' name. And all the children of the Lord said... You can do better than that. All the children of the Lord said... Children's Church, right around by the piano, or you can go back and join your folks. Good job. All right, if you guys could open your Bibles, if you would please, to Luke chapter 9. As we continue our study in Luke, we're going to look at verses 46, 47, and 48. Jeremy added on 49 and 50 for me to preach on as well, but those are going to have to be uh, put to some other time. In fact, if you take what uh, I talk about this morning and apply it to those two verses, you should be fine. But we're just going to look at three short verses this morning. Found on page 1027 in the Pew Bibles. Luke chapter 9, verses 46 through 48. Hey, uh, in a large church, the senior pastor and the youth pastor, one weekday, were in the sanctuary, kind of straightening up the furniture up on the altar. And the spirit moved, and the senior pastor just fell to his knees and shouted out, God, have mercy on me, for I am nothing. Well, the youth pastor kind of looked around, and he said, well, I guess I better follow suit. So he dropped to his knees, and the youth pastor shouted out, Lord, have mercy on me, for I am nothing. And then from the back of the church, there was this voice. It was the janitor. And he fell to his knees, and he cried out, Lord, have mercy on me, for I am nothing. At which point, the youth pastor turned to the senior pastor and said, Hey, look who thinks he's nothing. We are, uh, we are looking at the topic of humility. In fact, I'm going to pretty much use our passage in Luke as a springboard to a topical sermon on humility. So that's kind of where we're going this morning. I don't dare preach at all without prayer first, but I certainly don't want to take on the topic of humility without a lot of prayer. 
So if you guys who pray would join me and, uh, and lift me up in prayer, let's, uh, let's bring this idea of hearing God's Word before the Lord. Let's pray. God, You, better than anyone else, know that I'm not a worthy person to stand before anyone and talk about humility. But Your Word is true and Your Word is powerful. So I pray that in spite of all of my shortcomings, that You would speak truthfully and clearly and powerfully through my mouth this morning. Lord, may Your Word be heard and may it change our lives. Lord, we pray that You would move by the power of Your Holy Spirit to take that which is spoken and use it to move and change us, to be more like Your Son. And it's in His name that we pray. The people of the Lord said, Amen. Hey, the disciples are arguing over who's the greatest. Before we, uh, before we take a look at this passage, I'm going to invite you guys to join me in a unison reading of these three verses. You up for doing that? If you have an NIV Bible, great. If you don't, the Pew Bibles are in that translation. It would really work better if we were all in the trans- same translation to do a unison reading. Um, if you don't have an NIV, you can get one out of the Pew, pew Rack. It's just three verses. But if you would uh, help me out, we'll read this uh, together in unison. Luke 9, verses 46 through 48. Together we read, An argument started among the disciples as to which of them would be the greatest. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, took a little child and had him stand beside him. Then he said to them, Whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. For he who is the least among you all, he is the greatest. Now, I had a, a leader of a small group come to me this week when I was talking about this passage. And she pointed out that the uh, disciples were acting more like little children than like grown men. But I didn't argue with her there because I didn't want to appear like a little child. But, but I do take exception to that this morning in that I know a lot of little men... <laughs> myself included, for whom the idea of who's the greatest doesn't go away when we grow up, unfortunately. There's a, there's a lot of guys out there wanting to be the alpha dog. Um, but the guys are kind of competing with one another for status within Jesus' uh, kingdom. Who's going to be the greatest? And Jesus knows what they're thinking, so he, uh, he gives them an object lesson. He gives them an object lesson. In Jesus' day, little children had a very low standing in society. They weren't influential in driving a consumer market economy. They weren't viewed as immortality symbols. Parents weren't saving for their five-year-old's Harvard education. To be a little child, especially if you were not the firstborn male, was to be in a very low and humble position. You had no rights. You had no voice. You merely existed to obey your parents. Sounds pretty good for some of us parents, doesn't it? An adult, and especially an adult male, had no reason to be welcoming to a stranger's child. To welcome a little child, particularly an unrelated little child, would be a great act of humility. So it would have seemed strange to the disciples' ears when Jesus told them, whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. It doesn't sound strange to our ears. Most of us have heard it a number of times. But for those folks hearing it for the first time, it wouldn't have made much sense. 
Jesus was in effect saying, the way you treat this little child is the way you treat me. And the way you treat me is the way you treat God. And then just to make sure that these guys didn't miss the point, he spells it right out. For he who is least among you all, he is the greatest. John Piper, in his book, A Godward Life, says this about these few verses. I blew it up on the photocopier so I can read it without my glasses, but it's really on page 141. It's John Piper. He says, Jesus took the child-belittling culture of his day that defined greatness to exclude receiving children, and he turned it upside down. He said, Receiving children in my name may be the world's least, but the world's least is my great. So wherever the Spirit of Christ pervades, the people who receive children will no longer be the least. They will be great. Really? Why? Because Jesus says that when you receive a child in his name, that is, with love and Jesus' strength and for his glory, you receive Jesus himself. In that act of love for the glory of Christ, Jesus himself draws near and makes his fellowship more real and more sweet. Jesus continued by saying that when you receive him in this way, you also receive God the Father, which means that the nursery may be more full of God on Sunday morning than any other room in the church. Sandy didn't ask me to do this, and uh, neither did Jill, who's running our nursery now, but hey, if you want to be humble, there's still room in the nursery for servants. Um, Jesus is redefining humility. If you uh, take out your sermon notes, it looked like this, if you would please. And inside these sermon notes, on the left side of the inside part, page 2, there's a sampling of scriptures on humility. Now, my professors at seminary would take exception to what we're about to do, to, to read a bunch of bullet verses without any historical context or any explanation. Uh, it's not a wise thing to do, but I think these scriptures are so straightforward and simple, if I dare say simple, that... Uh, there's not much danger in doing this this morning. I want to read these real quickly. Therefore, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. For, any, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show it by his good life, by deeds done, in the humility that comes from wisdom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. Finally, all of you, live in harmony with one another. Be sympathetic, love as brothers, be compassionate and humble. Okay, so reading John Piper and reading these Bible verses, it seems clear to me, and hopefully to you as well, that we are to be humble. Now, I know some of you may be thinking, man, Rich, I'm so good-looking. I'm so well-educated. I'm so wealthy, so successful, so athletic, so well-dressed. Those that are in the youth group know why I'm doing this. I don't dress like this often. 
So polite, so refined, so cultured, so popular, so powerful from such a high quality stock family, yada, yada, yada. It's hard to be humble. Others of us may be saying, I'm so unattractive, so unathletic, so shabbily dressed, so rude, so unrefined, so uncultured, so unpopular, so powerless from such a low family stock, yada, yada, yada. So I've really got no reason to be proud. But you go get them, Pastor Rich, because it's about time those rich snobs had what's coming to them. Regardless of our relative station in life, pride is an equal opportunity destroyer. Pride is an equal opportunity destroyer. If you're human, you have pride. I can't speak for you, but I find it a lot easier to say amen when Jesus tells me that I need to be humble than it is to consistently practice biblical humility. Like this morning, for instance, how do I preach a heart-piercing, life-changing sermon on humility without going away feeling prideful? Is it right at the end of a sermon on humility to tell a pastor, good job? I put together a list of three things that I think can help us in our quest for humility. So if you've got your sermon notes, there should be a pencil and a pew rack in front of you, something to write with. If this helps you stay awake for the next half an hour, please uh, use this outline. If uh, it's distracting to you, toss it aside. It's worth what you paid for it. I believe the first step down the road to humility is reminding myself that I'm not as good as I think I am. I'm not as good as I think I am. What I'm going to call relative humility. Now, if you're a first-time visitor with us this morning... Uh, know that Pastor Jeremy will be back in the pulpit next week, and we haven't taken this on as our new slogan. Welcome to South Shore Baptist Church. You're not as good as you think you are. <laughs> no, that, uh, that is not going to be on, the, on, our, on our bulletin cover. Uh, but if we're trying to uh, attain humility, I think this is the starting point. I'm not as good as I think I am. Relative humility. At the 8.30 service, I said relative humidity by mistake. It was a humbling moment. If I start thinking I'm smart, I get in a theological conversation with Pastor Seth. If I start thinking I'm pretty fit and athletic, I play kickball with the middle school kids. If I start to think I'm a pretty good preacher, Pastor Jeremy strolls into my office. This is relative humility. I'm humbled by comparing myself to those who are greater. The most humbling comparison, of course, is to compare ourselves to God. Obviously, if we're honest with ourselves, we come up way short of a perfect, holy, all-powerful, all-knowing Lord. And if I'm honest, I recognize that the distance between me and the lowliest person on earth is much, much, much closer than the distance between me and God distance between me and the lowliest person is much, much closer than the distance between me and God. I would say it's infinitely closer. Recognizing and admitting that I'm not as good as I think I am should get me started down the road to humility. If I honestly compare myself with God, I should feel really badly about myself. If I honestly compare myself with God, 
there should be remorse over my moral failure. And that remorse, combined with the Holy Spirit's conviction, should cause me to cry out in desperation to God for mercy. Recognizing my shortcomings, my sin, my woeful failure before a holy and righteous God is a most essential and important first step in having a right relationship with God. In the church, we call this confession and repentance. And it certainly is an act of great humility. Biblical humility begins with our initial confession of guilt and failure before God and our desire to go in a new direction. Humility is the entrance, the starting point to citizenship in God's kingdom. And humility begins when I realize that I'm not as good as I think I am. The next big step in in the humility journey comes when I come to understand and accept that everything I could possibly boast about is ultimately a gift from God, what I'm going to call true humility. Number two, everything I could possibly boast about is ultimately a gift from God. We have relative humility and now true humility. If you would open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 4, we're going to look at verse 7. It's on page 1130 in the Pew Bibles. 1 Corinthians 4, verse 7. The Apostle Paul is addressing some prideful believers in the church at Corinth. And again, I'm taking this verse out of context. I encourage you to study these verses in their context this week. But I think it's pretty straightforward. For who makes you different from anyone else, Paul says to these prideful Christians in Corinth. What do you have that you did not receive? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? Now you may say, hey, I've worked really hard for what I have. My education, my position, my home, my SUV. Nobody gave these things to me. I earned them. Okay, but who gave you the opportunities, the intelligence, the motivation, the determination, the perseverance? Who gave you what you needed to obtain them? Ultimately, all the good that we are and all the good that we possess has been received, given to us by a loving and gracious God. There's a nationally renowned pastor and preacher who has a photograph of a turtle on a fence post. He says he keeps this on his desk to remind himself that like the turtle on the fence post, he did not get where he is by himself. Taking our eyes off of ourselves and focusing our eyes on God, the giver of all good things, is certainly an important step down the road on our quest for humility. Biblical humility recognizes and celebrates that which is good and healthy in our lives and gives all the credit to God, the giver of all good things. Biblical humility begins with, oh, what a miserable, rotten sinner I am, as we throw ourselves upon God's mercy. But biblical humility doesn't end with us wallowing in our sins and failures. We need to take the next step and recognize and celebrate the many gifts, talents, resources, and other blessings the Lord has given to us. Praise be to God that everything we could possibly boast about is ultimately a gift from God. So how do we keep our focus on God, the giver, and not let it shift or drift off to focusing on the gifts that God has given us? I believe the answer is a person, Jesus Christ, perfect humility. Number three, Jesus Christ, perfect humility. 
A, his life. Real, real quickly, I want to do some speed reading. If you would turn back a few pages in Luke to uh, chapter 5, real, real fast, I, I want to uh, review the Gospel of Luke from chapter 5 to where we are today, looking at themes of Jesus and how he treated the lowest and most humble people on earth. Of all the Gospel writers, I believe Luke uh, has the biggest emphasis on Jesus treating the lowly. All the Gospel writers certainly emphasize that, but I think Luke, of all, of all four, has the most emphasis on that. It's one of the reasons I really like Luke. He has a huge heart. Jesus has a huge heart for the downtrodden and the lowly. And I want to just do a a flyby here. Okay, so starting in the beginning of uh, chapter 5, he calls his first disciples. Not one of them is a CEO. Not one of them is a major stockholder in any big company. Not one of them is a millionaire. Not one of them is a person of any great standing. Luke was a doctor. He's the highest standing. But it wasn't like a doctor today. Fishermen, tax collectors, working guys. Then he heals a man with leprosy. Verse 12, lepers were at the bottom of the social pile, had to live outside of town. We won't preach that sermon again. Then he heals a paralytic, another helpless person, totally dependent upon his friends to even get him to Jesus. Then he calls Levi, a tax collector, and has a party at his house and invites all the sinful people to his home. Then uh, we move into chapter 6. He does a little teaching. It's interesting, in Matthew... Matthew's Sermon on the Mount, says, he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit. But in Luke, it says, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, in verse 20 of chapter 6, 21. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. And then we move along. 6 through 6 into 7. We get the widow's son. Widows were at the bottom of the, of the social ladder as well. And this is a, you know, a woman without her husband who's now lost her son. And Jesus raises this widow's son. And then we push ahead. He's anointed by this sinful woman, probably a prostitute, a woman of ill repute. He allows this lowly woman to pour the perfume on his feet and wipe his feet with her hair. And then we get into chapter 8. And uh, push, push. We get the demon-possessed man, the crazy man in the in the graveyard that no one could contain, even with chains. He takes time for him and gets him into his right mind. And then the story that I think, out of all the stories in Luke, that most points out Jesus' humility, is found in Luke 8, starting at verse 40. And again, Jesus, uh, Jesus, there's a Freudian slip. Jeremy has preached on these. Uh, passages recently, so I'm not going to give this a lot of time. But Jesus is in town and he's with one of the most influential citizens of the town, the ruler of the synagogue, a guy named Jairus. A guy who has a lot of influence and authority and a lot of power within his community. And this guy's daughter is dying. As they speak, she's dying. And Jesus starts going with this high-powered, influential guy to heal his daughter. And the crowds are pushing along around him and so they go on their way. And a woman who's been bleeding for 12 years, spent all of her money, is flat broke, is ceremonially unclean because of her bleeding. She's not even allowed to live with the rest of the clean people. She pushes her way through the crowd where she's not even supposed to be, reaches through, touches Jesus' cloak, and she's healed. 
Now, if I'm Jesus, she's healed, that's cool. I'm just going towards Jairus' house. Because this is an important guy, and his daughter's in critical care. She could die any minute. And if I can get there and heal his daughter, think of what he can do for me. Everybody in town will want to follow me if Jairus is going around telling them what I did for him. The woman's already been healed. She doesn't need me to stop. Jesus stops. He stops. And one of the Gospel accounts says that the woman told Jesus her whole story. The woman sits there and goes back and recounts the last 12 years of her life, when the bleeding started, how she's gone to these different doctors, everything that she's done, all the pain that she's experienced as a result of this disease. And Jesus stands there and listens to this woman telling her story. She was the lowest. She had nothing to, that she could give to Jesus. She couldn't make a contribution to his campaign. She couldn't influence others to follow him. She was just at the bottom. He's with the guy at the top and he stops. And while he's with the guy, the gal at the bottom, Jairus' daughter, you know the story, she dies. The 12-year-old daughter dies. Which is really cool because then Jesus goes and raises her from the dead. So it has a happy ending. But what a powerful, powerful picture, to me anyway, of the humility of Jesus. Choosing the woman with nothing, in a sense, over Jairus, who had everything, and a pressing concern. Jesus had time for them both. So that's Jesus' life. Jesus repeatedly demonstrated concern for the lowliest people. I don't think you can read through the Gospels and not come to that agreement. He repeatedly demonstrated concern for the lowliest people. How about his teaching? We could do a sermon series on Jesus' teaching on humility. And we don't have time, certainly, to do an in-depth study this morning. But I'd like to look at a couple of his, of his teachings. If you would turn to Luke 14, we're going to read verses 7 to 14. It's on page 1034 in the Pew Bibles. Luke 14, verses 7 through 14. This is Jesus speaking. He says, When he noticed how the guests picked the places of honor at the table, he told them this parable. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor, for a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, Give this man your seat. Then, humiliated, you will have to take the least important place. But when you are invited, when you are invited, take the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he will say to you, Friend, move up to a better place. Then you will be honored in the presence of all your fellow guests. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Then he said to his host, When you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or relatives, or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back, and so you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. I haven't thrown a party in my home where I've invited the crippled, the lame, and the blind. But it's Jesus' teaching. Flip a few pages ahead, if you would, to Luke 18. We'll, we'll look at verses 9 to 14. Jesus tells a parable, a pointed parable about humility. To some who are confident in their own righteousness and look down on everybody else, 
Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, the righteous religious dude, stood up and prayed about himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Does that sound familiar? It's exactly what Jesus said back in chapter 14. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Jesus taught his followers to be humble and that humility would lead to exaltation. Jesus taught his followers to be humble and that humility would lead to exaltation. We see this truth most clearly when we look at his death on the cross. See his death on the cross. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. It's on a page 1162. I think this is the last time I'm going to make you go flipping through the Bible this morning. But I don't promise that. I think it is, though. Philippians 2, 5 through 11. It's a very famous passage on how our attitude should be similar to that of, of Jesus Christ. Apostle Paul writes, Your attitude, our attitude, should be the same as that of Christ Jesus who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus' death on the cross is the perfect act of complete humility. Jesus' death on the cross is the perfect act of complete humility. Jesus' resurrection is the perfect act of God's exaltation in response to humility. Jesus' resurrection is the perfect act of God's exaltation in response to humility. In our pursuit of humility, we must learn to view everything through the lens of the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Whatever we face, whatever we face, joys or sorrows, blessings or hardships, abundance or want, elation or depression, Ideal employment, unemployment. Singleness, marriage, divorce, remarriage. Better or worse. Sickness or health. Benign or malignant. Friends or enemies. Prison or freedom. Honor roll or academic probation. Exhaustion or relaxation? Overtime or vacation? Booze or cheers? 
We must learn to face everything with an awareness of Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection. I believe the key to attaining biblical humility is a very high level of cross and resurrection awareness. I believe the key to attaining biblical humility, or should I say more accurately, moving towards biblical humility, is a very high level of cross and resurrection awareness. We must remember Jesus' great act of humility and God's great response of exaltation. We must believe deep in our hearts and our souls, at the core of our very being, that if we truly humble ourselves, God will indeed lift us up. Earlier I spoke about how humility is the entrance, the starting point to citizenship in God's kingdom. But it's not as if we enter God's kingdom on our knees and then stand up straight and tall and say, God, aren't you lucky to have me on your team? No, the kingdom of God has low ceilings. The kingdom of God has low ceilings. Some of you know John Sargent the Younger, also known as John Sargent the Taller. Uh, if, if you come to the 8.30 service, he's one of our praise and worship leaders. He's almost 6'8", six, 6'7", six, and three quarters, he told me this morning. Well, years ago, John and I worked together in a ministry called Young Life, which met in homes here in Hingham, and we would have students, high school students, sitting on the floor in these houses. And John played his guitar and led some singing. And uh, we were in a home about a block from here that was built 1690-something, and the ceilings were, I don't know how tall they were, high they were, but I know they were lower than, than six, seven and three quarters. Because this picture is just burned into my memory, here is John for about a half an hour up in front of this group of teenagers with his guitar in this position with his knees bent and his backside kind of sticking out because he was too tall to stand up in this room and play his guitar. So he's sitting there leading these students. I think that's a good picture, a good visual picture of the posture that we need if we're in God's kingdom. But it's an incomplete, it's an inadequate illustration. Because John bent over playing his guitar doesn't really, really hit posture that we need to be in to be in God's kingdom. The humble posture that we need to participate in God's kingdom is not kneeling, and it's not bent over strumming a guitar, but it's flat out dead. Flat out dead. Flip back a page or two to Peter's confession of faith in Luke 9, starting at verse 18. Jesus is praying. He wonders what the people are thinking about him. He asks, who do folks say that I am? And the boys say, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others, one of the prophets has come back to life from long ago. And then he says, well, who do you say that I am? And Peter gives his declaration of faith, the Christ of God. And then Jesus warns him not to tell anyone, and then he predicts what's going to happen, that he's going to suffer, be rejected, be killed, and on the third day raised to life. And then he says this, Then he said to them all, If anyone would come after me, verse 23, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will save it. Pastor Jeremy preached on this text at our Monday Thursday service. And if you missed it, I'm sorry, it was a wonderful service. Come next year. It's a, it's a candlelight service. It's a very solemn and powerful service. A worship service, but he preached on this text and in his sermon he quoted Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his book, The Cost of Discipleship. 
Here's what Dietrich Bonhoeffer says. When Jesus bids a man come, he bids him come and die. When Jesus bids a man come, he bids him come and die. The Apostle Paul said it this way in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. The final stage of humility is when we so identify with Jesus Christ's death that we consider ourselves dead with Christ on the cross. We claim Jesus' death as our own death and we share the hope of his resurrection. We view ourselves as dead to ourselves and alive to Christ. We give up all claims to our own life We surrender all our rights and resources to him. In humility, we die with Jesus. It's no longer we who live, but Christ who lives in us. We enter into and share in Jesus' suffering and death. And in return, we have the hope of sharing in his resurrection and exaltation. It's a mystery. It's supernatural. I certainly can't fully explain it. I can't fully express it. And I must confess that um, I have yet to, to fully experience it. Yet I believe it's what the Bible teaches. I've written a children's song. And uh, it's on the back of the children, I mean, it's back of the, uh, the sermon notes there. It's really, really simple. If you pick it up and you want to sing along, I would greatly appreciate it. With great authority, you made the earth and sea, the flowers and the bees, Adam and his Eve. Great authority, what great authority. With disregard for thee, they ate fruit from the tree. They were no longer free, enslaved to sin we'd be. What a great calamity. A great calamity. With great humility, Jesus died for me, hanging on a tree for all the world to see. What great humility. To follow thee, it can't be about me. With great humility, I must share your tree. Your authority, my calamity, 
So what? So what? So we must be humble. We must die with Christ. If you've not begun your journey towards humility, if there's anyone here this morning, they just haven't started that path yet, here's my challenge. Take some time this week to honestly and thoughtfully compare yourself to God. Examine how you measure up to a holy, perfect, pure, and all-powerful God. Be honest with yourself. Then talk to God about what you discover. If you've started down the road of humility, if you've recognized your sinfulness, and in an act of confession and repentance, you've cried out for God's mercy and grace, available only through Jesus Christ, I challenge you to take some time this week to give God glory, praise, and thanks for everything good in your life. Take a piece of paper and list your assets, your abilities, skills, experiences, resources, joys, pleasures, your loving relationships, all that is good in your life. And as an act of true humility, give God, the giver of every good thing, the credit he alone deserves. And if you're actively seeking to follow Jesus Christ, and if you're ready to commit to a deeper level of faith and more actively pursue greater humility, I challenge you to pray with me the prayer of humility at the bottom of the sermon outline. If you would turn there right now, I want you to take a minute to read this prayer. I don't want you to pray it unless it reflects your heart. That's the danger of printed prayers. But if you take just a moment uh, to read the prayer that's down at the bottom there. After a closing hymn, I'm going to invite those who would like to, to pray this prayer in unison with me. Now, I do have a warning, a caution to all who choose to pray this prayer at the conclusion of the service. I'm going to challenge us to perform at least one act of humble service this week for someone who is lowly, powerless, sick, lonely, or otherwise needy. Jesus took humility and he made it a verb. And we know from the example of Jesus Christ that humility is more than a heartfelt attitude found in a sanctuary on Sunday morning. Amen? Amen? Amen. Please stand, if you would, as our praise team and Jennifer lead us in singing When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, page 324 in the hymnals, page 324.